Welcome back to the Burning Archive. I'm Jeff Rich. This is a, a podcast, a channel about geopolitics, history and culture. And today we're talking about different ways of telling the story of the Ukraine war and why you should stop thinking that World War Three is about to begin. In the last episode, I outlined exactly that why you should not think World War Three is is about to begin, that it's catastrophic thinking, that it ignores some of the specific realities of this conflict, both in its regional dimensions and also how it's working out across the world, that it tends to just replay tired old cliches about American successes in World War Two and World War One with a lazy assumption that America will prevail again in World War Three, even though perhaps there will be nuclear winter across the rest of the world. And it also largely ignores 75% of the world, the BRICS nations, who are not at war with Russia. So World War Three has not begun, but America has certainly... Uh, drawn Europe, uh, drawn Ukraine into a major conflict with Russia that is having global significance. So what I want to do in this episode, after having discussed in the previous episode the rather interesting interview that Emmanuel Todd gave about World War III having begun, is to uh, talk about five other alternative narratives of this uh, war. So number one is an idea that has been expressed by a Russian thinker, Alexander Dugan, perhaps a notorious Russian thinker, Alexander Dugan. And he wrote, uh, who Alexander Dugan, who you can see on screen there, he wrote a book, uh, called uh, The Last War of the World Island, which really talked about a kind of a looming conflict between Russia and the West, where there would be a conflict for the world island. Now, what is the world island? The world island is a term that harks back to the geo British geographer Halford Mackinder from the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, who uh, wrote a famous essay that has become the foundation of a lot of geopolitical thought, particularly in the Anglo-American world. Uh, that talks about Eurasia as the world island. And he had this expression that he who controls the heartland, the sort of central parts of Eurasia, that is Russia, uh, he who controls the heartland controls the world island. He who controls the world island controls the world. And this idea is really dominant in American political thinking. You see it even in sort of Zbigniew Brzezinski's uh, ideas about the grand chessboard uh, 
it informed the uh, you know the the American approach to Afghanistan and the Afghanistan war, both uh, Russia's war against Afghanistan and America's war against Afghanistan. And it very much informs the American strategy to attack Russia from its vulnerable southern underbelly of Ukraine and therefore break up, weaken uh, Russia and have more effective control of the world island. But Alexander Dugan's uh, viewpoint is, if you like, the same idea, but flipped around on the Russian side. So he said it's Russia's destiny to actually unify and control the heartland of Eurasia. And he uh, uh, expresses what you'd call Eurasianist ideas. He sees Russia not as a European power, not as a... Asian power, but as a, a mix, uh, which is a very, very strong tradition in a Russian political thought, which I have discussed in my uh, podcast series on Russian history. So you should check that out. Uh, but he also talks about Russia as uh, a civilizational identity that is a representative of traditional values. And this is the viewpoint that he puts in uh, uh, The Last War of the World Island, that it is a, I guess it's Russia's destiny at some point to confront the West and to re-establish control of the world island uh, in partnership perhaps with China and to expel the foreign Americans rather than America to come and um, take over. Uh, and what's more, he's also done, uh, just very recently written a piece which has been translated, which was called Absolute War, and has been translated by, uh, I think, the Eurasianist on Twitter. And I'll just read this to give you a sense of of the kind of thinking, and I'm, I'm not endorsing this thinking, I'm just articulating this as a way in which people can see this conflict. So Dugan writes, For the first time in history, Russia is fighting an absolute war. All previous wars were relative and prototypes, prefigurations of this one, which is the main one. Only this war is the final one, the last and irreversibly significant. It is clear that we do not yet understand it. By we, I assume he means Russians and Russian leaders. What is happening is beyond the comprehension of even those involved in it, even those who started it. For the first time at the other end, there is absolute evil not partial, not relative, it is not even the West, much less the ephemeral transient entity of so-called Ukraine, however hellish it may seem. It is something much deeper. This is humanity's last war. Only Russia, with a few others, 
has decisively taken the side of truth, but has not understood how. It is for this historical moment that we Russians have been created. Regardless of how it ends, preparations for the last judgment are in full swing. The watershed is cutting across the planet, on this side or on the other. Humanity is torn apart. So that's pretty apocalyptic uh, thinking, uh, fairly religious kind of thinking, which I guess reflects uh, Dugan's perspective. Um, he's a rather complex character. It's roots in Heidegger and all sorts of stuff. Um, but uh, uh, in a, some ways, he's a, a new incarnation of uh, Slavophilism and Solzhenitsyn and uh, the kind of Holy Mother Russia, destiny of the Orthodox nation kind of thinking. And uh, uh, I certainly think it's a little bit troubling that there is such apocalyptic thinking emerging but uh there's similar it's if you like the the mirror image of some comparable apocalyptic thinking that is occurring in the west and i think it's probably something that uh we should be aware of and um try to not see the world in this way <laughs> But I think there is some level of truth in that there is this emerging conflict between the Atlantic world of North America and Western Europe and Eurasia. It's, it's the kind of uh, newly emerging centres of power, trade and commerce that are described in Peter Frankpan's um, new, uh, Silk Roads and the New Silk Roads. And it's not only trade, commerce, it's also military, it's also scientific, it's also technological, it's also cultural, it's also political systems. So um, that is one way to see the conflict. And the other thing I'd say about that is I think Halford McKinder and the whole idea of the world island and that, that idea of geopolitics is... Uh, has had a good run, but I don't think it really reflects the realities of the world today. Uh, and I've written an essay about Halford McKinder's um, World Island concept, which you can read in my book uh, from the Burning Archive, uh, Essays and Fragments 2015 to 2022, and there's a link to that book below. So if you're interested in that sort of idea, you, you can buy the book and learn more about uh, some of the these ideas about geopolitics. Uh, and the other thing I guess I'd say about that is there is a tendency in Western commentary to conflate Alexander Dugan, who, as you can say, see there, is prone to rather apocalyptic thinking, and uh, Vladimir Putin's geostrategic geopolitical uh, calculations. Uh, in reality, Vladimir Putin is a far more cautious, far more conservative, far more calculating, far more prudent uh, person than Alexander Dugan. So, 
uh, even though he may well be informed by ideas of conservatism and ideas of Eurasianism, I don't think he really sees this as the last war of humanity. And again, this is why we should stop thinking of this as World War III, because it's coming to this apocalyptic thinking that ultimately does us no good and doesn't help restore the leaders of the world to uh, the path of dialogue and diplomacy. Okay, the, th uh, the second um, idea or alternative idea about this conflict that I'm going to discuss today is the idea that it reflects the rise of civilizational states. This is an idea that has been expressed by the American journalist Ross Douthat. Uh, he's a New York Times journalist. He's sort of like the resident conservative uh, journalist in the New York Times and he's sort of written some books about um, I guess cultural decay in America uh, which one of which has a rather odd ending that talks about you know space flight being the solution to America's problems <laughs> God save us uh, but it's also been picked up by the sort of internet commenter Steve Turley, but it all fundamentally reflects the ideas of Samuel Huntington from uh, the 1990s in his book *The Clash of Civilizations*. And the the narrative of the war that this puts is that uh, Russia. China, India are emerging as challenges to the West and espousing uh, not just a national identity but a civilizational identity and that they want to bring together their uh, their national boundaries with their civilizational boundaries. In support of this idea, they refer to how, you know, Narendra Modi will quote uh, Vedic texts, or, you know, China is very proud of its long thousand year old uh, civilization, and similarly, how Russia espouses itself uh, and is, it proudly talks about its thousand-year uh, civilizational history. And uh, it, it sees these civilizations as kind of fundamentally in conflict with the liberal, modern, rules-based order, that it, it, there is a clash going on. And in his uh, 30th of March 2022 article, Ross Douthat titled it, Yes, There Is a Clash of Civilizations. And he talked about how Samuel Huntington's book from the 1990s, Clash of Civilizations, uh, Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, is was is prescient people might have doubted in the 1990s in the the midst of the mcdonald 
McDonaldization of the world, the the peak of you know fever of uh, of uh, excitement about you know the unipolar world of American hegemony, um, of America making its own reality, of uh, you know the world wanting to adopt American lifestyles and institutions and patterns. Uh, they might have doubted Huntington's ideas that there were limits to that, that there would be a clash between uh, Chinese civilization, Orthodox civilization, uh, um, you know, Hindu civilization, etc., or an Islamic uh, civilization and the West. Uh, but he says that in a way events of the Ukraine war suggest that this is clearly the case and he actually argues that it it's evidence that Vladimir Putin um, wants want that 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 all the these leaders of China Russia and India are actually are seeking out a clash of civilizations. They want a civilizational war. They want to project greater power and greater uh, cultural influence uh, through being powerful civilizational states and to bring America down a notch. And uh, this has some appeal and I guess it at least shows an awareness that there are different different ways of seeing the world, different civilizations, different cultures informing politics and and geopolitics around the world. But I think it's a fundamentally flawed idea of seeing this war. Uh, and and here you might want to check out my uh, podcasts and videos on uh, the idea of civilizations and cradles of civilizations, including specifically uh, the video on Samuel Huntington's clash of civilizations and how it we talked about the potential conflict between the potential conflict in U Ukraine, given its sort of mixed identity. But I think. To think of civilizations in this way is fundamentally flawed. And what I, what I comment on about Samuel Huntington's uh, book, Clash of Civilizations, is he gets into a bit of a muddle where he basically uh, conflates civilization with religious identity, uh, except in the case of the West, although there's a kind of a, almost a sense in which the West is the sort of liberal Protestant Anglo-American world. Uh, wasps, as they used to be described back in the 50s and 60s, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. In those series of podcasts, I discuss in detail how civilizations uh, the, there are some alternative ideas of civilizations put by the historian Felipe Fernandez Amesto that uh, uh, see it as a way of adapting to the world. There's no sort of category of 
you know, and there's no sense in which one civilization is better than another, and that the whole idea of Western civilization itself is a bit of a mixed bag. So uh, do check those out, but because of those weaknesses of the idea of civilization itself, uh, I do think that uh, to see this war as a war between civilization states, the clash of civilizations, is mistaken. And what it also doesn't really do is it doesn't take these leaders on their word. These people are expressing their cultural, political identity. We need to understand what they are and learn to live together on the same planet uh, about them. And I explore how uh, Vladimir Putin actually directly counters Samuel Huntington's idea of clash of civilizations in his Valdai speech, in the uh, video I did on the uh, Valdai speech, where he called not for a war between civilization states, not for a clash of civilizations, but instead for a symphony of civilizations. So do check that out. So the idea of the rise of the civilization state, of a clash of civilizations, that this is uh, the inevitable religious uh, conflagration between, you know, orthodoxy and, I don't know, uh, Protestantism, maybe, uh, the the sort of Western European Christian faiths and Islam and uh, however they represent Sinaitic civilization these days is is I think mistaken and um, very much uh, a bit of an insular American perspective that has got carried away with its own idea of itself as the leader of the West. Okay, three more ideas on how to tell this story. The next, the third in this podcast, the fourth overall on uh, these alternative ideas of uh, interpreting historically alternative narratives of the Ukraine conflict is to see it as a hundred years Cold War between Anglo, or the last phase of a hundred years, hundred years plus Cold War between uh, uh, the Anglo-American powers and Russia. And this idea I've uh, sort of developed partly uh, drawing on this book by Odd Anne Westad, the, the Cold War of World History, in which he uh, takes what he describes as a 100, he sees the Cold War as a 100-year uh, uh, process. The book attempts to place the Cold War as a global phenomenon within a 100-year perspective. It begins in the 1890s with the first global capitalist crisis, 
the radicalization of the European labor movement and the expansion of the United States and Russia as transcontinental empires. Uh, it's in 1914, I think, that the, or 1912 maybe, that the Trans-Siberian Railway finally provides a strong uh, communications network across the entirety of the vast Russian Empire. It ends around 1990 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the United States, finally emerging as a true global hegemon. Uh, my argument is that the Cold War was born from the global transformations of the late 19th century and was buried as a result of tremendously rapid changes a hundred years later both as an ideological conflict and an international system, it can therefore only be grasped in terms of economic, social and political change that is much broader and deeper than the events created by the Cold War itself. And I guess my uh, alternative theory here is that uh, we could say that perhaps the Cold War... Well, I've made the argument in a previous podcast that uh, the Cold War did not come to a successful diplomatic settlement in 1989. America, uh, after Gorbachev, did all these kind of things to to disarm and to um, you know dissolve the Warsaw Pact and all that sort of stuff. Uh, America assumed a triumphalist approach where it had crushed its enemy and did not need to secure peace, whereas the Soviet Union uh, it was assuming that it was an equal and sovereign uh partner in the international system and that it was trying to develop a new uh, a, a new system of peace in the world I, i've discussed this in some length in episodes i've done in the podcast on mikhail gorbachev and uh the idea of this being uh it's been uh, an ex if you like the last 30 years been an extension of the cold war um and this this is reflected in the idea that NATO and America uh, promised not to expand NATO eastward but then went forward and did so. In effect, it continued an undeclared war against Russia for 30 years after the end of the Cold War. And the significance of the, uh, I guess, the events in in that reading of the story, the Russia-Ukraine war is finally, it is is a case of Russia finally saying, enough, you're at war with us, you need to stop. And this has been evident in statements that uh, the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has made in recent days, similarly Vladimir Putin. So, uh, uh, and, you know, there's extensive discussion in Westad's book, but also in other sources as well, about the 
long, long uh, um, rivalry and um, attempts to break up and 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 expropriate the resources of Russia from uh, America and Britain. Uh, both those countries intervened in the Russian Civil War just after the 1917 revolution. Uh, and America, of course, uh, and both those uh, countries uh, were were uh, leading leading uh, opponents of the Soviet Union, obviously during the Cold War. Uh, that's an alternative way to see it, and in some ways, that same uh, idea from Westad's book that the Cold War was actually a much longer process. Uh, that had roots in deep, deep changes. You can see the same sort of thing happening. There have been similar deep changes happening in the world over the last 50 years. There have been profound changes in the rest of the world that are seeing the emergence of the multipolar world, the growing economic strength of other nations, the reduced reliance on the culture and technology and economies of uh, America and the Western Europe, a turn against globalization, I guess, a turn towards uh, greater uh, political, social, cultural diversity in the world. Uh, so that these are breaking apart the system that America and Britain and the NATO powers have sort of held on to uh, as uh, uh, as an end of the Cold War. And there's also a sort of institutional dimension of this as well, that so much of the American, I guess, security state, the academic apparatus, the education system, uh, the military was vested in um, both the occupation of Europe and its its long, long war against Russia and the Soviet Union. And so much of those ideas have sort of kind of uh, almost by osmosis been transferred on to Russia. Initially, there was the expectation that with Boris Yeltsin, etc., uh, that America would be able to you know, commercialize, you know, establish commercial control over Russia. But once Russians start to say, no, we're going to strengthen our own state and resist, all the same tropes of uh, the Russian anxiety, the black legend of Russian history, the antipathy to Soviet communism, uh, it was transferred back. And you can see this in so much of the uh, American commentary on Russia, which tends to sometimes even talk about Russia as the Soviet Union, as a communist state. Russia is no longer a communist state. Um, so that there is this sort of, uh, they're sort of stuck in the mental habits of the long, long Cold War. So that is... Uh, uh, another way of seeing this as uh, 
the last phase of that long Cold War and a transition period between the international system that was established uh, through the Cold War that had that period of American hegemony. And although Westad ends the story there, in truth, what probably happened was there was a postscript to the story that if America had truly ended the Cold War in 1989 and truly negotiated a fair diplomatic peace in 1989, truly uh, responded to Gorbachev's overtures for like a Marshall Plan for Russia or genuine partnership in disarmament and security, uh, you know, the common European home and all those sorts of things. If that had happened, you would have had a different system. But America wanted to, you know, uh, enforce the liberal rules-based order. But the world is just changing too much. And the war in Ukraine, as even American leaders and NATO leaders have articulated, you know, is a, you know, a, a kind of almost a do or die struggle for this liberal rules-based order, which is uh, the latest label to describe the international system of the Hundred Years Cold War. The fifth idea is uh, a more outlandish one, which is that uh, these are the wars of the Anglo-American succession. And in um, 2021, I wrote a little uh, blog piece on the Burning Archive uh, blog, which uh, was titled The Looming War of the American Succession. And let me just read from that uh, for you. It's a fairly brief little piece. And you can also read it in my uh, book from the Burning Archive, uh, Essays and Fragments, 2015 to 2022, which is available on Amazon and all online retailers. In, and you can I'll include a link below. Uh, but there I wrote, In 1700, Charles II, King of Spain and Emperor, presiding over a vast global empire, died without a child and without a clear successor. His death triggered a great war over geostrategic control of the possessions of the declining Spanish Empire by rival dynasties and rival great states. France and Spain were diminished and the groundwork was laid for what turned out to be 300 years of Anglo-American ascendancy. This war is known as the War of the Spanish Succession, hence the title, The Looming War of the American Succession. In 2020, Joe Biden was elected President of the United States of America and began to indulge five decades of frustrated foreign policy schemes built on misunderstood security briefings. He was the perfect representative of an incompetent, self-deluded and corrupted elite. He initiated what he thought was a master stratagem in the great game of the Eurasian pivot area, 
replaying Brzezinski's Soviet Afghan trap for China and Russia. But Joe and his think tank boys Blinken and Sullivan were no Nixon and Kissinger. The Iberian diplomat and writer on geopolitics Bruno, Bruno Matthias said of the performance, uh, and here we're talking about the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, which Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor from the US, has recently confirmed was done in part to free up American military and strategic resources for the fight to come in Ukraine. I have never seen such a monumental, This and this is Bruno Mateus from the New Statesman in uh, uh, mid-2021, I have never seen such a monumental display of incompetence by a Western democracy as the American evacuation from Afghanistan. So in 2021, the indispensable nation died without child, as with the Spanish succession, or its esteemed American mind or democracy. Its death triggered a great war for control of Eurasia, the oceans and the new spaces of information and culture. Mackinder plus Mahan, the uh, American uh, naval officer who articulated the idea of naval powers or sea-based powers versus land-based powers in the late 19th century and is sort of like the counterpart to Mackinder's geostrategy about uh, the heartland of Eurasia, the land powers, the continental control, rather than the control of the seas, the oceans. Mackinder plus Mayhem, Mahan plus McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, who said, of course, the media missed a message. So began the War of the American succession. So that's a provocative uh, idea, uh, but there is a hell of a lot in the air that uh, this uh, conflict in Ukraine cannot be understood except, as I guess the French anthropologist Emmanuel Todd articulated, and as I described in the previous video, the real threats to American power, the real threats to American power, to American leadership, to American military and economic dominance of the world, cultural dominance, and political dominance of the world, uh, that is at stake in this um, in this conflict, and uh, there is a tremendous sense uh, and growing sense I guess around the world that uh, America is not anymore what it used to be what it claims to be what it pretends to be that it simply does not have the leadership capacity the institutional strength the value system the economic resources the industry the military strategy uh, the political cohesion uh, and whatnot to uh, maintain the uh, the 
um, de facto empire that it operates around the world and that it needs to step back uh, and allow other great states to emerge in a multipolar world. Uh, and I wrote that piece, obviously, uh, I think it was in yeah, mid to late 2021, so prior to the Ukraine war. But I think in some ways the Ukraine war, uh, which in some Americans see as a, a Russian response to the weakness displayed by America in its withdrawal from Afghanistan, an invitation uh, by by American weakness for Russia to intervene, to be opportunistic. Uh, it You could see this as one of those first wars uh, uh, that are picking away at the, 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 the huge global domination of America uh, that may contribute to the breakup of NATO, that may finally defeat the long-held American plan to control the heartland of Eurasia, that may lead to uh, China reclaiming Taiwan and reducing um, American military dominance in the uh, Western Pacific that may lead to India, um, you know, asserting itself more powerfully in both economic, diplomatic and uh, uh, cultural terms around the world. Uh, the other great states of the world are, are responding to real American decline, real American weakness and real, a real, I guess, commitments crisis and over, America is so overextended uh, and with the, the um, growing moves to detach um, commodity trading from the American dollar uh, to the, the the demonstrated capacity of Russia, and if Russia can do it, China can do it too, to withstand the big weapon of the West over the last 30 years, which is economic sanctions, and its kind of coercive diplomacy through the United Nations. Uh, the American empire lo looks like it's starting to break up, and it also looks uh, after a succession of bad presidents um, simply unable to produce the political, cultural, military leadership to sustain the empire that it has established around the world. Okay, so the final idea about interpreting this war is to see it as the global wars of independence. And in a way, it's a different version of that story uh, but it's one that explicitly uh, references two historical examples the first of those I guess obviously is the American War of Independence uh, in uh, the 1770s 1780s uh, and its separation from the British Empire the foundational myth of America that it is a republic 
and not an empire. In a way, uh, you could see Russia as saying, uh, we are not going to play along with this constant attempt to uh, subject our society, subject our politics, subject our culture, subject our economy to uh, conformity with the Anglo-American model. You can uh, also see uh, uh, other states around the world finding their voice and expressing their independence. And one of those has clearly been India, and it's been one of the key aspects of this conflict in Ukraine that, uh, you know, the Britain and America and Australia all did their best to bully the uh, uh, India, despite India's uh, sensitivity to bullying and domination from <laughs> Anglo powers, uh, given its uh, their foreign rule in India from uh, the mid-1700s to 1948, uh, India has strongly asserted its uh, independent approach to its own foreign policy. So the second historical model that I'm referring to with the global wars of independence, of course, is the first Indian War of Independence, which uh, uh, is still known in Britain as the Indian Mutiny of 1857. So to see it as the global wars of independence is another way of saying that uh, what we're seeing in this conflict is a, uh, a system of uh, Western American domination of the international system breaking down that it's the power, authority, the military control, the economic control, that that unipolar power, that indispensable nation is breaking down and countries, cultures, civilizations, peoples around the world are demanding to set their own fate. The story, the histories of the Ukraine conflict at the moment. Is it World War Three? Is it the Hundred Years' Cold War? Is it the Global Wars of Independence? Is it the Wars of Anglo-American Succession? Is it the last war for the world island? Or is it the rise of civilizational states? Tell me what you think uh, in the comments below. Uh, and that really brings an end to this series of podcasts and videos that's reviewing the status of the Russia-Ukraine war. First, I looked at the overall narrative, the narrative, the whole story so far of the war over the last 12 months or the last 10 years. I've then talked about who's winning the war, the four dimensions of military, cultural inf or information war, economic war and diplomatic struggle. 
And then I did this extensive discussion of how you can frame this war against different historical narratives, how looking at different historical narratives of the war keep you sane, help you accept the complex and difficult, distressing reality of this war, and so look reality squarely in the face and come to terms with all the things that are good, all the things that are bad, and all the things that one simply has to accept, uh, because one cannot really control. Uh, so I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, like, subscribe, uh, tell your friends about the show. I'd love to build a bigger audience for the Burning Archive podcast and YouTube channel, which is all about geopolitics and history and makes the case. The past is not dead. The past is still past and it makes itself felt in our ideas, our actions, our uh, symbols, our cultural experiences, our historical narratives about today's events. And as I've long said uh, on the podcast, as a closing line, do remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee. Bye now.